From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The opioid crisis in the United States is likely to claim at least 1.2 million more lives before the end of this decade. And we can add that tragic number to the roughly 700,000 people who have died since the mid-1990s when OxyContin, which was heavily promoted by Purdue Pharma and approved by the Food and Drug Administration, began being prescribed in large numbers, leading to an initial wave of deaths from prescription overdoses and then a second wave of deaths from a heroin market that expanded to attract already addicted people. And now we're in the midst of a third wave, which has arisen from illegal synthetic opioids like fentanyl. It's been estimated that fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin, and it's also cheaper to produce. It's usually less difficult to find, and it's often easier to self-administer. The resulting crush of addiction had already overwhelmed addiction support services across the country by the late 2010s, and then came the COVID-19 pandemic. In a new paper for the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, Jamie Walters explains what happened next in the state of Kentucky, which in 2020 had one of the highest annual increases in overdose deaths in the nation. Nearly 2,000 Kentuckians died from drug overdoses in 2020. That was a 49% increase over the year before. An opioid was involved in 90% of all deaths, and fentanyl was detected in more than 70% of all cases in that state. Today, we'll be talking a lot about Kentucky, but this certainly isn't a problem there alone. Nationwide, in the first year of the pandemic, there were about 92,000 drug overdose deaths, a 30% increase from the year before. And again, most of those deaths were related to opioids. Jimmy Walters is an assistant professor in the Department of Social Work at Utah State University, where her work is focused on poverty, social service capacity, and the well-being of social workers. And quite a bit of her research is focused on poor rural areas of the southern United States, where the opioid crisis has hit very hard in recent years. Jamie Walters, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matthew. You've been publishing research on social issues and social work since 2017. You've examined social worker burnout. You've looked at the capacity of communities to respond to tornadoes. And you've investigated the perceptions of landlords regarding homelessness. It was just last year that opioids became a titular theme in many of your papers, a central theme. But I imagine it was growingly clear during the earlier years of your research that opioids were touching everything in the world that you were studying and the issues you were investigating. Yeah? Absolutely. One of the things that is um, interesting about social work research is how interconnected all of our topics are. Whenever we talk about housing or addiction issues, food insecurity, all of those things tend to be connected in some way. And so when I started doing research in 2017 as a PhD student, I took a great interest in looking at rural communities and those that were experiencing persistent poverty, which are communities that have seen high levels of poverty for at least four census cycles. And took a great interest in, in those communities because they were experiencing issues related to housing and um, health issues. And, and so this particular project was an opportunity 
for me to work with a couple of my colleagues uh, who were in my cohort at the time, uh, Dr. Aubrey Jones and Dr. Aaron Brown, both of who are at University of Kentucky now, um, to explore their areas more deeply and then connect with me in, in my area of um, looking at rural community well-being and also effective models of service delivery and, and so on. And when you say that all of these issues are interconnected, I want to go back to this tornadoes thing, which I find to be really <laughs> interesting. But I, I'd like to, I mean, I, I believe you could do this. I'm, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Can we, can we draw a line between even things as seemingly disparate as the ability to recover uh, for a community to recover from a tornado and opioid addiction? Well, I'll tell you the connection for me. So I studied tornadoes and the social response to tornadoes because my mentor in my PhD program was an environmental social worker. And I worked with her as her research assistant. And so when you're a PhD student, you sort of tag along with your mentor and do whatever they ask you to do. Whatever they do, you do. Yes. But it was a really great opportunity for me because it informed my future research in that I had the opportunity to explore the impacts of how uh, geographical context impacts people's way of life. And um, in, in this case, it was looking at, you know, rural communities and, and then also urban communities and the differences between how they approach um, their response to tornadoes and, and, and then also how organizations connected to delivering news about tornadoes and other severe weather, how that impacted those, those social responses impacted how they communicated with their audience. So that geographical context, the cultural context, those pieces really helped to inform what was happening in those organizations and understanding that whatever is happening in the community impacts the way that organizations deliver services. And that connects back to, you know, the study about opioid support services in in rural Kentucky. Really, we were looking at how the pandemic affected the support services for opioid use disorder in that community and um, and thinking about sort of the the rural context and, and how that impacts their service delivery model as well. This organization, let's talk about its strength because it it launches fairly shortly before the pandemic. And what was it doing to change the game in its area, so to speak, for for the for the delivery of services for people experiencing addiction? What was different about this particular program that it's it's not that they were doing anything groundbreaking, but what was different about it was that they were coming alongside mental health and physical health providers who were addressing opioid use disorder and other types of substance use issues and allowing, um, you know, once, once an individual left a treatment facility or perhaps they were in, you know, outpatient, um, outpatient care of some sort, this program, um, you know, it's designed to support um, people in OUD recovery, um, and they were providing vouchers to pay for essential needs like housing and transportation, childcare, clothing, mental, um, sorry, medical um, services, dental health, health services, and they were prioritizing populations that were at um, high risk of, uh, you know, you know, leaving recovery and, you know, and using again. And why that's important is because 
if a person is in, in recovery for um, opioid use disorder or any kind of um, substance use issue, that's highly stressful. And then if you add some kind of other stress, such as becoming homeless, not being able to get to work, not having uh, reliable child care for individual or child care for your children, um, that adds another layer of stress. And so this program allowed uh, those individuals to take some of that stress away and get those needs met so that they can focus more on their recovery and, and, uh, and then becoming a, you know, a productive member of society and living a life that, that is full and um, one that where they feel healthy and can function and have those positive relationships with their family and their friends and children and so on. And this organization, um, Kentucky Access to Recovery, which I think is the abbreviation CATER, is that how they? Uh, K-A-T-R. Um, actually, K-A-T-R. that's the name of the program. Um, the organization um, is that, that runs uh, K-A-T-R is FAHE, F-A-H-E. And that's, that stands for? Um, actually, it stands for Federation of Appalachian Housing Enterprises, but I think now they just go by FAHE. Oh, you know, I hate it when people do that. It's the worst. <laughs> um, so this organization is trying to address addiction alongside of things like stabilizing employment and providing adequate housing and making sure that people have public transportation. And that's all a challenge to begin with and was a challenge in 2019. And then 2019 turned into 2020 and COVID hit the United States. And a lot of these things got a lot harder, right? It became very difficult. And, you know, looking at at it from a service uh, delivery, service provision, and that's really where I get excited to look at things um, as a, as a researcher, but what happened with this program, and that's what we studied as part of our a more comprehensive study is looking at what happened to the service once COVID hit. And what we saw was that the case coordinators, they really, uh, you know, they had essentially like a weekend to make very swift changes to the to their service provision model because they wanted to make sure that their service recipients were going to stay in recovery regardless of what was happening you know in the nation I don't no one knew at the time what was going going to happen but they just knew that they had to make some changes very quickly so that that their uh, service recipients were not going to be without yeah and I don't think you know any compassionate person would fault the good intentions of those efforts to shift, you know, to to flip things around on a dime. But these adjustments, they weren't always conducive to maintaining the status quo of services for people who were either addicted or, or I guess also at risk of addiction, right? Because COVID didn't just create an environment that made getting treatment for addiction worse. It also created an environment that aggravated the factors of becoming addicted to begin with, right? I would say certainly. Um, if you were to look at sort of the trends and looking at sort of the increases in like heroin and fentanyl use, uh, you would see, you know, in, in the COVID-19 years that there was a, a major increase in not just uh, use, but also in dependence and overdoses. And certainly, you know, COVID was a time when 
people were isolated from their loved ones whom they've get a lot of support from. They weren't able to go to work regularly because their children were out of school. So it was just a difficult time for, for everyone, but particularly for individuals who may have had issues with substances in the past or, or may have been in recovery at that time. You and your team conducted interviews with some of these folks, some service recipients. Uh, you also chatted with program coordinators and some of the for-profit vendors who were providing services to people who were being served by opioid support services. In regards to the, the, the service recipients, what was the thing that jumped out at you in the interviews? The thing I would say that jumped out is how resilient uh, many of them talked about how being a part of this program gave them some unexpected strength and resiliency, not just within themselves, but being able to deal with a sort of unknown, un- the scary crisis that the country was experiencing to have those case coordinators with them and knowing that they had somebody to support them through a difficult time was something that really stood out to me. And it was clear to me that those case coordinators were their their connection to those individuals really made allowed, you know, those relationships allowed the individuals, the service users to be able to not relapse, not to um, abandon their recovery. I think you could really see in the stories that some of these participants shared with you and your team, the sorts of compounding challenges that, but not for the support of their, of this program could really throw them off kilter in their recovery. One service recipient said she'd taken on a bunch of extra roles during the pandemic. Of course, schools closed, so she was helping facilitate her children's education, and she wasn't getting a break from being responsible for her kids' health and safety during the hours that they'd normally be in school. And she was doing the hand sanitizer and making sure her kids were wearing masks. And, you know, I remember just hearing so many really exceptionally privileged parents during this time, say that they were completely at their wit's end. And this participant, many like her, didn't have many of those same privileges to begin with and was dealing with addiction to boot. It really becomes clear, I think, how off-kiltering this could be. Uh, this, This pandemic could have potentially been for all of these people who are in recovery. Absolutely. And I think, if nothing else, the what the pandemic did for us as a society is that it grew our empathy for those who are experiencing these kinds of challenges, that those those of us who are in a privileged position to have reliable child care or reliable transportation, you know, housing that's not unstable, it allowed us to see that things change very quickly and and how that level of stress can impact our lives in so many different ways. I I do appreciate that you see a growth of empathy among our society during this time. I I wish I saw it that way. You're are you an optimist or are you do you think you've got the data on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think I have um I would say I'm an optimist, but also 
I think if I didn't have some level of hope, um, I wouldn't be a very good social worker. (laughs) Um, If I didn't believe that communities and people were capable of change and seeing good in others, then um, why am I doing this work? At the same time that, you know, these shifts were being made in this program and and other programs across the country and really across the world to try to maintain services for people who are experiencing life on these margins. You know, these changes, I, I know, and we often focus on the failures, but were there adjustments that came out of the pandemic, not just this program as a success, but adjustments that the program made that have turned out to be beneficial and will continue to be maintained now that we are hopefully past the peaks of the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Some of the changes that we saw um, in this study and and looking at uh, the adjustments that were made for this program in particular uh, were that in rural communities, one of the challenges that we often see is transportation. And people tend to live far distances from services. So they don't have access to public transportation. And that is the case with this particular community that in this county, they don't have public transportation. And for someone who is in poverty, they may not have access to a reliable vehicle, but also gas. So one of the changes that that they talked about that was really helpful, both from the service recipient and the program coordinator perspective, was that doing things virtually, either doing things over the phone or while they're at another appointment, really allowed to kind of cut down on the amount of time they spend trying to figure out how they're going to get to an appointment. The service delivery became more efficient in a, in a way. And, and then I think cut down on the stress of individuals trying to get to where they needed to be. So that's one change I would, I would say that was really important. Of course, nobody could have predicted the COVID-19 pandemic specifically, but we knew that contagious disease outbreaks can happen, and they've happened reliably and tragically across our history. We similarly don't know when the next tornado is going to strike, but we know that they will, and there actually might be more of them under climate warming. And I suppose what I'm getting to here is that we might not know how our social service capacity is going to be stretched, but we do know that it will be. And I'm I'm guessing that this way of thinking about capacity is something that you have been contemplating quite a bit lately. Organizational capacity is, you know, my bread and butter. That's what I spend a lot of time focusing on um, in my research and it's, this is an important topic because um, if an organization doesn't have the capacity to operate in normal times, whenever it's a time of crisis, um, it's it's going to become even more challenging. So that's why it's essential that organizations are focusing on, you know, what are our strengths, what are we doing well, and then what are some areas that we need to work on so that when things become tough, we can still meet the needs of our service users. Do you think that's baked into the way that social service organizations think about themselves broadly, or does it take a little bit of help getting there, particularly for these organizations that are often already stretched so much and squeezing every dime? Is it already cultural, or is it something that we can continue to work on? Well, 
if you know anything about social services, as you mentioned, it, they are very stretched thin. And so they're just, you know, surviving day to day and trying to meet the needs of their you know, clients or their guests or their service users just daily. That's their main focus. But with managers and administrators, you know, they have to take a step back and understand that their job is to strategize and figure out how their organization can best operate. And, and while that's a lot of work and can sometimes be intimidating, it's essential. We have to be able to evaluate and understand what's working well for us and what is not so that we can, you know, be the best organization we can be to be able to provide those effective services that people absolutely need to be able to survive. I find it really interesting. You just said these organizations are surviving day to day and something like a pandemic can really be imbalancing that that makes these organizations a lot like the people who they they're working with. That's a great comparison. Yes, I would agree. Um, it's it's hard, you know, um, and and part of the issue is how we prioritize the importance of these types of organizations. And I think something that came out of the pandemic was understanding how valuable nonprofit and nonprofit organizations were to communities, as well as, you know, the social service agencies that were more government focused as well. I want to take a personal turn here. You grew up in poverty in rural Illinois. Um, Illinois also saw a very significant spike in opioid fatalities between 2019 and 2020, that first year of the pandemic. Did this phenomenon touch your community, your friends, your family back home? That's a good question. I I think it, it would be um, important to say that I think all rural communities struggle with some level of substance use issues. Um, I, I didn't have anyone personally that was impacted um, with opioid use disorder, but certainly I have, you know, family and friends who have substance use issues. And, and so this topic for me is, is very personal and, you know, and poverty in general is very important and personal topic to me to understand and, and figure out how can, we get people's needs met? How can we make sure that the services that we're providing are the best services that can can benefit people and benefit communities and, and make sure that our communities are strong and and healthy? I sense you're going to buck at this a little, but you're a significant success story from your community, your first generation PhD. How do, how do we make more people like you? How does that happen? How do we create this, the, the environment where people can ascend in their lives in that way? Well, I did grow up in poverty. The community I grew up in, it's, it's the very definition of rule. We had very few organizations in town that helped people in poverty. And thankfully, though, I had a few people in my life, one being a guidance counselor. I was also part of a a government program that focused on training teenagers in, in kinds of different kinds of um, workforce skills. And so that gave me the opportunity to have a job and be connected to people who would take me to visit a college campus and help me understand how to apply to college. And so without those individuals and those programs, I wouldn't be where I am today for sure. 
Is that the secret sauce, so to speak, of this program that you studied, that it's not just case managers, but it's people in the community, these pastors, coaches, like you said before, those points of connection that have been trained additionally to help connect people to these services? Is that what makes it work? In rural communities, yeah, I think that everybody knows one another. And when you're in a position where you need people to trust you and work with you, you know, it helps that if you have some kind of other relationship. And so a person who is your, you know, social worker who also happens to be the coach of your son's soccer team, it brings some kind of value to the work that you're doing with them in a way. It's actually, I think, an important component of rural service delivery. That's Jamie Walters. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Social Work at Utah State University, where her work is focused on poverty, social service capacity, and the well-being of social workers. And she's the co-author of a recent study on the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on opioid support services. Jamie Walters, thank you. Thanks, Matthew. It was a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.